It's good to be with you this morning. There's a story of a woman uh, who visited a, a factory where they make carpets, and this was supposed to be one of the most exquisite carpet factories around. And she walks into the assembly line where carpets are being made, and right away she says to the man making these carpets, what, what is this? There's, these aren't beautiful. There's, there's no beauty here. And the carpet maker replies to her, well, what, what do you mean? These are the finest carpets in all of the land. These are the best of the best. What do you mean there's no beauty here? And she pulls on a loose thread, and she says, look, there's a piece hanging here. There's a thread here. This, this is ugly. This is disorderly. It's, these are not nice carpets. And the, and the man politely smiles to her, and he says, ma'am, you're, you're looking at the wrong side of the carpet. And I think sometimes when we read Genesis 23, or certainly Abraham in Genesis 23, would have been looking at the underside of a carpet where there's lots of loose details, lots of chaos, lots of disorder, and wondering how exactly this is supposed to be God being faithful to his promise. But as we see in Genesis 23, and as I've seen in my life, and I hope you've seen in your life, God doesn't waste thread. God is very, very much at work in the details of life, and he does not waste any opportunity through which he won't be glorified. God does not waste any thread. He brings out all things for the good of those people who love him. And that's what we see here in Genesis 23. It's not an exciting text. This wouldn't make a good movie. Uh, a reenactment of, these, of this scene wouldn't be exciting or a thriller to watch. Uh, but a very plain reading gives us all we need to know. It's, it, it's very plain. It's right here. We just read it a moment ago. It's not a difficult text, but it's profound the ways in which God works. A New Testament perspective in Romans chapter 4 tells us a little bit about the life of Abraham and of, of, and of Sarah. And we see this too in Hebrews chapter 11, how, how miraculous uh, the, the faith was of these men and women who lived out God's promises. And in Romans chapter 4, about Abraham, it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so from Genesis chapter 12 to until through the end of Abraham's life, what we see is that God is strengthening Abraham's faith. Uh, I heard recently someone from our congregation uh, reflecting on this series we've been in Abraham. She said, she said to uh, one of the pastors, I, I think I'm starting to get it. The story of Abraham, the life of Abraham is about God. And she's absolutely right. This is a story about God growing the faith of Abraham through which he will fulfill his great promises. Now, when we look through scripture, there's two primary ways. There, there's more, but there's two primary ways through which God tests faith and grows faith. And the first one is a removal of prospects. Uh, in, in, in the book of Judges, early in the book of Judges, chapter uh, 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, we read the story of, of the early days of Gideon. And Gideon is this sort of nobody guy in a small tribe in a small town who's presented to us as a bit of a wimp. He's a bit of a scaredy cat. And God tells Gideon that he's going to do great things, that he's going to uh, free Israel from the oppression of the Midianites, and that God is going to help him get there. And soon Gideon is faced uh, with, with, you know, the reality of he's going to have to go free Israel from the, from the, uh, the oppressors, and he has 32,000 men with him. And God says something amazing. He says, no, this is too many people. I don't, I don't want you to, to uh, be proud of, of yourselves if you do indeed win. There's too many of you. And so God pairs down Gideon's army first to down from, from 32,000 to 10,000. And then he does it again from 10,000 down to 300. And the odds of winning this battle would seem 
certainly would seem impossible. And so that's one way through which God pairs down the, the prospect or the likelihood or the control we have over circumstances so that our faith in him would grow. And the second way, which is what we see happening here in the life of Abraham and in people like Esther, we see where God takes nobodies. God starts with nothing. And you can, you, the, the great thing about starting with nothing is you can't go backwards from having nothing But God makes this great promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and gradually throughout the life of Abraham and his family, we see that there's small evidences of God's grace and God's sovereignty unfolding in the details of life, God's promise, and he proves himself to be faithful. And so in both cases, whether it's option one or option two, the faith of Gideon or the faith of Abraham, we see that God accomplishes with little what would otherwise be, uh, even with the with, with as much as humanly could have been available, God accomplishes with little what could have even have been, couldn't have even been accomplished with much. So that our faith in God would grow and would flourish and would increase. And so by this point, Abraham has grown strong in faith. And, and Abraham knows better than to doubt God at this point. Because he's seen over the course of his life, God has come through again and again and again. And it's almost as if the sun is dawning on his promises as Abraham's life comes to a close and certainly he's faced now with the passing of his wife, his dear wife. He has seen that God has come through before and he had to come through again because of course God in Genesis 15 swears by his own name. There's no greater name by which God can swear and so God is bound by his word to come through on his promises. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11, All these died in faith, these being the men and women who are listed in Hebrews 11 as men and women of of having faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. You see, God's promise to Abraham and to all of humanity is bigger than any one of us, and it was certainly bigger than Abraham. And so God tells Abraham early on uh, that, that he will die that they'll go to to be buried in the ground, they'll live a good, long life, but God's plan will continue even after their life on earth is over. And so it's not that the sun went down on God's timeline or God was caught off guard somehow and ran out of time, but no, God was just getting started, even in a moment like this where Abraham has lost his wife and now he's looking for a place to bury her. In the grief and the sorrow of having lost his closest companion, through whom God's promise would be fulfilled, God is still actively at work in the details. And so I wanna, what I want to do this morning with the remainder of our time is I want to pull on two threads that we see in this story and see if indeed God is working in the details. And those two threads are the transaction that we see. By transaction, I mean the details surrounding the deal. What went down? How did Abraham come to uh, owning this land? And the second is the land itself. The cave at Machpelah, the physical land that Abraham assumed ownership of. What's significant about this thread in the story? And so for the rest of our time, we'll consider these two uh, aspects of the story. Now what we see in Genesis 23, let's start with the transaction. This really is almost a narrative of what went on. Abraham's before these people, and he's now looking to get himself property to bury his wife. This This is a public business transaction which is why I mentioned it wouldn't make a good movie because it's, a lot of it is dialogue and a lot of it is some negotiating and some people trying to be, 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 uh, be overly courteous to one another, insisting in their own way. Um, but remember at this point, 
Abraham is a sojourner. He's been wandering. He's been living in tents. Uh, this would be similar to, let's, let's suppose, an immigrant or someone who's new to a country. Maybe it's Canada. Maybe it's somewhere abroad. They don't come to the country with the same sort of things that are inherited to them or the same kind of societal rights or privileges that the locals would have. And so in our country, that is things like citizenship or some of the social securities that come along with being a Canadian citizen. So Abraham, even though he's been now in the land of Canaan for quite some time, he's moved around. He's been a, he's been a drifter or a nomad. And he's starting over in Canaan. But what we see about this transaction that I find fascinating is Abraham demonstrates great integrity before God. And not only before God, but before men. But here's what I mean by that. God's promised him already. God's told Abraham that this, this, this fulfillment of, of promise of land is going to take a while. He says that Abraham's descendants will go down into a land that's not theirs and be oppressed for 400 years before coming back and eventually receiving the land. And so Abraham probably knows he's not going to live 400 years. But his heart is set on, on doing the next best thing. That's how somebody once described, uh, a pastor uh, of mine growing up described living for God is, is being focused on doing the next right thing before God. And this is what Abraham seeks to do. He seeks to do the next best thing before God. See, he would have been, we know in Genesis 14, there's quite a story of Abraham and his armies. Uh, Abraham was a man of means, and so he, he probably could have easily assumed this land by force, by military force. He would have had the ability to do that. But instead, he proceeds with what was culturally appropriate in the community he was living in. His heart was set before God on doing the next best thing as a foreigner, assuming ownership of a land in a place that was not his Further to this, in verse 6, the, uh, the, the, the people of Hebron, the Hittites, give, a give us a little clue here on who Abraham was. They say, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. So for the amount of time he's lived among these people in the land of Beersheba and in the, in the land of, of Canaan, he's, he's built up a bit of rapport, which suggests to us that he's, he's basically got his mind fixed on doing the next best thing. They've honored him and they've respected him. Now, this doesn't necessarily tell us that the, peop uh, that the Hittites feared God or feared Yahweh or wanted to honor God in the same way, but they recognized that Abraham was a prince of God among us. In other words, he, he wasn't a, a bother to them. He wasn't a threat, which is why in their interactions with him, they're, they're wanting to show him kindness and compassion by offering him land. And so the first thing is that Abraham had integrity in his heart. The second thing is that this land was assumed by honest means. You see, there's some back and forth. Abraham makes his request known uh, to, to the people there at the city gates. And they say, sure, Abraham, take your pick. Back in those days, uh, a family would have had a tomb probably for, for their, their own family to bury their own family members. And that tomb would have been generational. And that tomb would have been for that family. And so there's lots of burial grounds available. And so these people, uh, the, the Hittites, are saying, Abraham, absolutely, take your pick. The finest of the tombs will be yours, which is, an, which is a generous offer. But Abraham, very politely and respectfully, he bows and he insists that he would like to purchase a land. He wants a place for himself. And he singles out a man named Ephraim to purchase his cave. And Abraham uh, knew, knew about it. He said, there's a cave at the end of this field that belongs to Ephraim, the cave at Machpelah, and that's, the, that's the, the tomb, that's the cave I would like to buy as a burial ground for my descendants. And not only that, but he insists on paying the full price. 
And Ephron comes up to him and offers to, to give it to him and says, here, I'll give you not only the cave, but I'll give you the field as well. You can just have it, you know, take this. But Abraham wasn't looking for a bargain and he insists on paying full price. And this to us should be significant that Abraham insists on paying full price because what would have been common in those days, and which is not uncommon for us here, if you're going to buy a car uh, from, from somebody, a used car that maybe runs, maybe doesn't, and you're ready to buy this car and you say, how much do you want for it? And the seller could, might say a thousand bucks. But a thousand, of course, really means 750, right? So you reply something like, well, I was thinking 500. And then he says, well, I was thinking, how about 900? And you go back and forth, and there's this haggling that goes on. And finally, you land at a price that works for both of you, somewhere in between the first and the second number. But Abraham doesn't do that. He wasn't looking for a bargain. He says very upfront to Ephraim, name your price. I'll pay it in full. And so without a second thought, Ephraim says to him, well, what's a field, what's a property worth 400 shekels between friends? What is that between us? Don't worry about it. And then Abraham begins to count out the cash right there, not only in front of Ephraim, the person whose land he's going to be assuming, but in front of all those witnesses. He begins to count out the cash and hands it over. Now, 400 pieces of silver, to give you an idea, we don't operate in shekels anymore and we don't deal in silver, but to put this into perspective for us, that's the equivalent in those days. Uh, some research suggests that that could purchase eight healthy male slaves which to us, we don't also deal in slaves, but that was a, that was a high price to pay, 400 shekels. Uh, if you were a laborer or an artisan, you would earn probably about 10 silver shekels per year. So 400 is more than you could ever expect to earn in a lifetime. 400 shekels was a high price to pay. Now, there's some dispute as to whether or not 400 shekels for this particular piece of land was a fair price or whether it was too much. And we could get into the details about comparing other transactions that we have record of from those times and comparing it to see whether or not Abraham got a good deal or whether or not he got taken advantage of. But my point for us this morning is this, is that it doesn't matter whether he got ripped off, whether he paid too much, or whether he paid a fair price. And here's why. I think what's important for us to note is that he did pay the full price. He paid the full asking price without negotiating, without haggling, and without complaining. And so at, at the most, Abraham got hustled. At the most, he paid too much. But at least, he paid a fair price. He at least paid what was asked. He didn't lowball, he didn't try and negotiate, but he paid the full value. And here's why I think that's significant for this, for the purposes of our study this morning, to see how God's working in the details. I think if, if Abraham uh, had negotiated or given Ephron less than what he had initially stated, the value of his field, regardless of his, of his uh, appraisal, whether or not that was a fair number, is that Abraham wasn't interested in God's economy. It wouldn't have mattered what the price was that he named because Abraham's hope was not in generosity or kindness of Ephron or of the Hittite people. But by this point, Abraham's faith was fully in God. The integrity in his heart caused him to place full confidence in and hope in God that he would fulfill his promises, whether or not this was that moment, this opportunity for Abraham to acquire some land. So if he paid too much, if he paid way too much, and if he got extorted, I think it speaks all the more to the honesty, to the honest means through which Abraham assumed ownership of this field. And as I said, at very least, he didn't negotiate. He didn't try and cheat his way into getting something for less than full price. 
Because if it was God's means of providing land, it wouldn't have depended on Ephraim being fair or not. God's got lots of money. I don't know if you, need, you, you know that, but if you look at how God has provided for our church, for organizations, God's capable. God's not, God's not limited. His hand is not bound by anything, particularly money. God has lots of it or has access to lots of it. And so the result is this, is that Abraham's name is irrevocably on the title. He pays the full price. He doesn't question it. He doesn't negotiate. And in exchange, his name is fully on the title. I think if Abraham had paid anything less than full asking price for the property, it's possible that down the road, the property could have been uh, repossessed. Abraham could have been accused for uh, being unscrupulous or being dishonest. So lest anyone approach him later with any false accusations or approach his descendants in future generations, lest anyone do that, Abraham wanted to make sure the purchase was done fair and square. He had owned the land, lest it be repossessed. This was an unimpeachable transaction. It was ironclad. No one could go back and try and repossess it or redo or go back on the deal, but this was a fair and square deal, and there were witnesses to boot. I don't know if the witnesses were necessary, but I think Abraham was intentional on on this public uh, transaction, which we'll get to in a moment. Abraham, though, would be vindicated of any future accusations. So the the, the transaction, the deal, the property, transpired through honest means, because God and not man is, is the hope of Abraham's blessing. No one can be credited for helping God out or helping Abraham out in fulfilling the promises of God by giving him a deal, for giving him more or less than what he had asked for. So Abraham pays no mind to the full asking price. The, second, the, the, the third thing to note about the transaction is that it's done in the vulnerability of a public setting. I live in, in town here in Parksville, and nearby my house there's a property that's being uh, t- taken on by a new owner, and they're looking to, to change the zoning. And so it's designed, it's zoned currently for housing, and they're looking to change the zoning for it into some other type of real estate. And you've probably seen these big signs around town. If, if the city or an owner's looking to rezone property, they'll put up a big sign, they'll put it in the newspapers. Uh, it's an agenda item at upcoming town hall meetings for the public to basically approve or at least have an opportunity to uh, air their grievance should there be an issue with this proposal. It's a permission of sorts from the people to see if, generally speaking, our community would be okay or would be in support of this particular change to this particular property. And so this, for that same reason, is why Abraham, or or at least is a benefit of Abraham doing this in the vulnerability of a public sphere, because his request is made public. As I mentioned, land wasn't easily given or sold or, or transferred to sojourners or to foreigners. It was uncommon, particularly land that was useful for things. Uh, Arable properties were valuable, and so they were generally kept within families. They weren't just sold on the real estate market like we do today, where anyone can come and buy any piece of property if the price is right. But these were generational. These were, uh, these were properties that were kept in the family. And so Abraham, it's important to notice in verse 18, the setting at which this transaction take pla- takes place. It's, it's in the middle of, of you know, what you would today maybe consider a city hall. It's the setting for us is in the city gates. And it's a public dealing of affairs, almost like a town hall meeting with, with a microphone off to the side where you can get up and, 
and, and, and plead your case why something should or shouldn't happen. Very public setting witnesses uh, to be there to protect this deal and the vulnerability of a public setting. So the transaction itself matters. I believe God is at work in the transaction, securing his promise, even in the nitty-gritty details of negotiating for a piece of property. God is at work in this. I said there was a second thread that I wanted to pull on and, and test and see, which is the land. The land itself, the cave at Machpelah, became the first fruits First fruits is, is a biblical word, particularly in the Old Testament, which literally means first fruits. If you had a crop of apples, the first fruits were, to, were the finest, were considered the finest, the most precious. Uh, after a long year uh, and season of growing a crop, the first fruits were usually given uh, as a sign of honor. And God asked for the first fruits of certain things to be given to the Levites or to be burnt as an offering. The first fruits are, are a very precious thing when you've acquired something, whether it's a crop or in this case, a land. It's the first fruits. It's the very early sign. It's the foretaste of something greater that's coming. And so if you harvested a crop of apples, the first apples of your harvest were precious because it speaks to an eventual crop of an overwhelming amount of apples that are coming your way. You see, after 25 years of Abraham first receiving the promise of God that, that, they, that he would have descendants, that they would become a great nation, that they would uh, assume a land and that they would bless the whole world and that Abraham's descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the beach. 25 years later, Abraham finally and Sarah finally received the, pro the, 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 the prospect, the first fruits of a son, which was against all odds. Sarah already was advanced in years. Uh, the, the, the scripture tells us that the way of women had ceased to be with her, so she was well past her childbearing years. And at the age of 90, she conceives... And, and, and gives birth to a son named Isaac 25 years after the initial promise. Against all odds, again, God is in the business of growing faith and doing so by slowly, at least in the life of Abraham, slowly increasing his faith through overcoming impossible means. So 25 years later, Abraham receives a, a, a first fruit of descendants, which is through Isaac. And before he dies, he gets to, uh, he sees Jacob, and then, of course, the descendants increased from there. But it took 25 years for Abraham to see any evidence of any kind of hope of God actually coming through on his word. And now, for the first time, after over 60 years of being a sojourner, being a wanderer in this new land of Canaan, Abraham, for the first time, has assumed a small piece of land, a small plot of land, a first fruit of sorts of something much greater. A permanent place of his own. This summer, I put up a fence in my property. And so I met with my neighbor, and we had this little magnetic uh, sensor uh, to find our property peg. Because your property, too, will have a peg that marks where your property starts and where it ends. And so we figured out where our property was, and that's the line that we built a fence on. This was a, this was a definable line for my property at which, on which line I, I, I built the fence. So Abraham also now for himself had a definable plot of land, a quantifiable, tangible, physical, real place to call his own. After 60 plus years, uh, my father just turned 60. <laughs> 60 is old. 60 is, is a long time. 60 is a lot of years for Abraham to wander around for the entire length of my dad's life is a significant amount of time to be a drifter to be a couch surfer, to be a hitchhiker, 
to be a wanderer or a sojourner. It is a long time. And now for the first time, he's received, albeit small, an inheritance of what God has finally revealed to him. The Hebrew word for this, this property is akuza. And it implies a permanent inheritance, something that is given in uh, perpetuity to coming generations. So it's not like Abraham owns it till he dies and then it gets repossessed. But no, this land is now permanent to the descendants of Abraham. It's, It's transferred in perpetuity for the upcoming generations. So it became a a first fruits of a greater inheritance, which of course would be the promised land, which of course is several hundred years away uh, from transpiring. But God is securing promises, and in his grace is giving Abraham a small glimpse of that. Remember what it tells us in Hebrews, that they died not having seen the promises, but having, having greeted them from afar. The same is true of Moses. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land, but he got to stand on the top of a mountain and look out and see the land that would be theirs. Because God works in his timing and not ours. This was a first fruits of something much greater. The second thing I'd like to point out is that uh, this land, this cave, this burial ground that Sarah would be buried in, became an altar of God's faithfulness. In the book of Joshua, chapter 4, Joshua is leading the Israelites into, uh, across the Jordan River. And it tells us that it's, uh, it's, it's harvest time where the banks of the Jordan are overflowing. A lot of water, and there's a lot of people that need to get across. And in God's timing, perhaps humanly speaking, the worst timing when the river's more full than it ever is, God says it's time to cross. And so I'll, I, won't, I won't tell you the whole story, but read it for yourself in the early chapters of the book of Joshua. God miraculously holds the water back upriver so that the nation of Israel can walk through on dry ground like they did in the Red Sea, and they can enter across the Jordan and while they're doing that, while the feet of the Levites and the people of Israel are in the, the, in the middle of the river on the dry ground with the waters held back like a plug on a bathtub, God speaks uh, to Joshua and says, get 12 men, one from each tribe, to pick up a boulder and to put it over their shoulder and carry it to the place where you'll camp tonight. And at that place, build an altar for me, an altar of memorial. And God, in his, in his grace, tells them why. He says, so that in future generations, your kids can say, Dad, what's that? Tell me about that altar. What does it represent? And that you can tell your sons and daughters what God had done. This altar would, would, would be there forever. And it tells us in the book of Joshua that at the time of its writing, that it was still there. You could go and see it. And lots of places in, in, the, in the promised land, and you could go to Israel, and you could take these tours of where they think certain things happened. There's a significance at being there where something transpired. So this land would become an altar of God's faithfulness where Sarah would be buried. Later we'll see that Abraham is buried in the same place. And this gets passed down for generation and generations. You've been to a cemetery, I'm sure, and you visited the grave of maybe a grandparent or a loved one or perhaps even a spouse. Not a lot of words need to be said in a cemetery, do they? Because graves and memorials speak for themselves. My grandparents are buried in the Okanagan, and you can go there, and you can sit by their graveside and reflect. And it's not necessary for my sisters or I or my parents to sit there and talk about the life that my grandparents lived, because sitting there in silence speaks for itself. The graves, the memorials tell their own story. 
And this is the kind of thing that's happening here with this cave at Machpelah, is that this would become an altar, this would become a tombstone of sorts of what God has accomplished through his people, that God is slowly, graciously, miraculously fulfilling his promises. You've heard the term uh, of a captain going down with his ship. A captain is, is uh, the, the most, he, he bears the most responsibility, he or she bears the most responsibility of anyone else on the vessel. And so, traditionally, a captain would not leave the boat if it was sinking in a capsized type of situation. He, he or she would not get off the boat until everyone else had before him. And if a captain goes down with his ship, it means that he, he, he either accomplished or he basically died trying to fulfill his duty. He, he died being faithful to his call. And this is kind of a, where you get buried is kind of a going down with the ship for Abraham and Sarah, saying, my life is, is over. My life here on earth has come to an end, but I am resting, my final resting place of my physical body will rest on the promise of God. Graves tell their own stories. And that's why Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca would be buried there as a way of staking their claim, their final, uh, the, the final bit of, of fight that they have left in them, where their bones will rest is in hope of something greater, the promise of God of a land. And so Abraham, in a few chapters, will die. Isaac, Jacob, Rebekah, and Leah will all be buried in this place. This became a significant place for these upcoming generations on which the promises of God would stand. As I said, this, this text isn't exciting at a first reading. Maybe you're doing a Bible in the Year reading plan. And if you are, you've, you've probably reached this point by now. And I think sometimes our tendency is to read stories or read passages like this. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mary, and the fields of the kings, and they made trees, and their field, and Abraham's possession, and uh, 24, chapter 24, you made it. We sort of mumble and stumble through things like genealogies or these kinds of narratives because they don't seem significant. This is our, our, our tendency, but imagine if, uh, if realtors did the same thing. Hey, this property you're about to buy is on the street, and there's a school, and there's a, you smell the ocean air. You wouldn't be drawn into it. You, you wouldn't be uh, inclined to sort of buy what they're selling. Realtors don't do that. They, they speak very colorfully. If you were, uh, let's say, living uh, further inland, and you couldn't come to Parksville to see the house you wanted to buy, your realtor would explain it to you in colorful language. If you lived as Brian and Madge, if you were going to be one of their neighbors, they would tell you that your property is on a beautiful oceanfront road on the Salish Sea, which is the Pacific Ocean, on the island, the central island, which is Vancouver Island, which you can see the storms, and they'll go on and on and on giving you colorful language. And so I think we shouldn't miss the closing verses of our chapter this morning, verses 17 through 20, could read very plainly, but they could also read like this. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was east of Mamre, the field of, with, the with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abram as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave, in the field of Machpelah, which is east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property and a burying place by the Hittites. 
you see that the point of this, this passage is to reiterate to the reader that, that a light is dawning on God's promises that Abraham has finally now received a plot of land. We should read this passage with, we should read it emphatically because we can see that God's promises are becoming a reality. That now Abraham has assumed possession of a land, of, of the land of Canaan, not just any land, but that God is true to his word. Abraham at, at some point in, in the first 60 some years of his wandering would have had plenty of times or opportunities at which to turn back to his homeland in Haran. But he doesn't because he held fast to God's promises. A light is dawning over God's promises. He hadn't run out of time, but this was only the beginning. So, yes, God works in miraculous ways. He does. Scripture attests to that. Some of you have stories of God working incredible miracles in miraculous ways in our life. Yes, God absolutely can and does work in miraculous ways. And God also works miraculously in ordinary ways. Don't underestimate God's ability to bring about the fulfillment of his promises or to carry out his plans. God works miraculously, absolutely. God also works very ordinarily in lives and circumstances that seem very ordinary, like the passing of a wife or purchasing a burial land, the way in which that transaction goes about. God does not waste any thread. So what are the threads in your life? What, what, what te- tendencies do you have to assume something to be ordinary? Often we, our tendency is to categorize our life. God, God can do great things in my church life, in my family life, or in my prayer life, in my spiritual life. But God's not interested in, in what my neighbors do, my relationship with my neighbors. No. Do you think he could be? How about the, the, the plain, mundane, everyday interactions with strangers in a place like the grocery store? Does God waste those opportunities? Do you think that perhaps God could be working in miraculous ways in ordinary circumstances in the grocery store lineup? Or maybe you coach a hockey team or a soccer team. Do you think that God just maybe could possibly be working in your life in miraculous ways with the team you coach? Or maybe you're retired and you golf three days a week because you've got lots of time and golf is fun. Do you think perhaps God could work miracles through you and your golfing buddies? Do you think God could anoint your conversations on the fairways as you walk between holes over months and years that you've golfed together? Do you think God can work in friendships? What about in difficult things, pain, sickness, or death? Does God waste those opportunities? I don't think he does. God is capable of working great things in all circumstances. Because the same is true for us as it is for Abraham, that God is in the business of growing our faith. Here's what it tells us in Romans chapter 8, on the topic of salvation. Romans eight twenty eight says, And we know that for those who love God, God's people, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It says all things, not just the spiritual things or the obvious things, 
or the incredible, amazing things, excuse me. But God works in all things, in the mundane things, in the details, in the loose threads that seem like they play no part in life. God is working those details. He's a master carpet maker. So remember which side of the carpet you're looking at. And don't underestimate God, who's able to work all things together for those who love God for our good. Jesus, to his listeners in, in uh, Mark, pardon me, Matthew chapter 10, he addresses them something to the effect of that they need not worry. And here's what he says. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledged, uh, acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. You see, part of God's sovereignty is the faith and the assurance that everything is subject to his reign and rule. Everything. Nothing in this earth, whether physical or spiritual, happens without God's allowing, with God, without God's ordaining. That's what God's sovereignty means, is that everything is subject to God's authority. Everything. Even the finest details are subject to God's authority, so we needn't fear. We need not worry. The Lord is big, and my life and your life are in the hands of an almighty God. My life isn't my own. Your life is not your own. We're God's children. And God promises to work things out for good according to his will, not our will. So if God tenderly cares for the sparrows that you and I miss every single day, that we don't even notice, if God tenderly cares for them, will he not also sovereignly work in the ordinary details of your life? If the God of the heavens has numbered the hairs on your head, is he not worth putting your trust in as a God who doesn't waste any details? Let's pray. Lord, you're a great and mighty God, and I'm thankful that this is a story about Abraham, but more than that, this is a story about you. This is a story of your almighty hand and a, and a, and a retelling, a heralding of the amazing uh, strength you have to make much out of little and to do impossible things with close to nothing. Lord, you don't depend on us. You don't depend on our wisdom or our ability to have good people skills or our ability to no negotiate or uh, get a bargain. Father, you're much more capable than oftentimes we give you credit for. And so I thank you that you hold in your hand the lives of precious sparrows. You number the hairs of our head. Father, that you don't withhold good things from those who follow you and those who love you. And so may we too, like Abraham, Lord, have faith that is tested and challenged and grows. And I thank you for the wonderful grace that we have of the scriptures, Lord, where we can look back and remind ourselves and set our heads straight from time to time to see that you're a God who's incredible, who's amazing, and who's, a, who's capable of great and mighty things. Lord, continue to do a, a work in our hearts this day in the ordinary circumstances, in the mundane, monotonous routines of life. Father, help us to not lose heart. 
of your hand at work. I love you, Lord, and it's in your name we ask all these things. Amen.